trust in God's ability to care for his church. So I'm really looking forward to how God's going to shape them and shape our church during that time. And we want to take a minute just to pray for them as a church body. Um, I, I, my hope is that we'll take a minute every Sunday morning to remember them in our prayers. So pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the gift of Pastor Jamie and Pastor Heidi. We thank you for their obedience to you and choosing to rest. And we pray that this morning, wherever they are, the entire Pagels family would be flooded with the fullness of you. God, would they feel your grace and your presence with them? We pray that the work you have already begun in them would continue until it's completed. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to our church. We declare our trust in you that you will protect and restore and encourage our pastors. And we declare our trust in you that you will care for and build your church. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So my name is Kristen Veldheisen. Um, I'm the youth pastor here at Pullman Foursquare. So I get to spend a lot of time with middle schoolers and high schoolers. And some people, people would say that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> my husband also serves with me. He's in the back running sound right now, uh, making me sound good. Say hi, Chris. <laughs> I don't know if that was Chris supposed to say hi or you guys supposed to say hi to Chris, but whatever happened, it worked. <laughs> um, so we've been married about two and a half years, and I bet that you can guess the question we are most asked since we got married. Want to take a guess? Anyone? Anyone? Yup, when are you going to have children? The answer to this is none of your business. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't expect that reaction. I'm just kidding. Um, the actual answer, I'm kind of kidding. The actual answer to that question is when we can afford to feed them food. So um, that'll be a good day. But in the meantime, a lot of people around us uh, are having babies. There are three. Actually, one was just born this morning. I'm so excited. Very cute name, too, although I can't remember. Luna, that's what it is. So cute. Um, and now Bridger and Rochelle have to make sure that their name is just as cute. Just kidding. So we have two more coming this Sunday, and my younger sister is pregnant, which is, like, blowing my mind. And my older sister already has four, so sometimes I feel like I'm just surrounded by babies, which is great because I like them. Um, and since it's Mother's Day, by the way, hi, Mom. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. She listens to all of these. Um, many of the women here, <laughs> I don't know why that was so funny. Um, I'm going to get it together, sorry. Many of the women here are probably already thinking about like motherhood because it's Mother's Day, or maybe you're not, but you might have thought about the process of like growing a child in your body. It's a little mind blowing. Um, if you've ever been close to a person who had a child growing in their body. Ugh, weird. Also awesome, but weird. Um, you've witnessed a portion of a miracle. It's a human being formed. And it's incredible that life can come from just a small little bundle of cells that grow and multiply and eventually form organs and skin and fingers and toes and a little nose. And eventually that little life comes out of another body and a baby is born. 
The average human lifespan, not for the United States, but for the whole world is about 70 years, a little over 70 years, not quite 71. The forming of that little baby happens over the span of only 10 months. For all of you who are out there like, oh, it's nine months, she got it wrong, 40 weeks, okay, that's 10 months. Then over the next few, (laughs) over the next few months and years, they're transformed into little humans that can talk and walk and use their bodies for all sorts of creative messes. And um, that's really fast that it goes from like itty bitty human who relies on you for everything to like also little bitty human, but they can like express their thoughts and ideas and emotions and they can walk and talk. Like it happens so quick in just a couple of years. Imagine if it took longer than that, though. Like, what if the first bit of forming life, those 10 months, actually happened over, like, the quarter of a human's lifespan, so 17 years? And so by the time the baby was born, it was actually 17. (laughs) And then what if, like... (laughs) Rachel's laughing at me. (laughs) And then what if over the next 17 years, the next quarter of that kid's life, they were in that like baby toddler phase so by the time they're 35 they're actually just like and then (laughs) so they're like finally able to walk and talk and run when they're 35 years old and if that were the case we all might look so good when we're 70 We'd, we'd all look like 35 year olds um but that's not how life happens we instead we're formed into complete humans in just 10 months And we learn our fine and our gross motor skills so quickly. And we can communicate our needs and our wants. And even even if our emotional development is still maturing and we, like, need lots of naps, if that's you, don't raise your hand. Um, The rest of our maturing and growth happens as humans much more slowly and slows down even more as time continues. So once you are born, then that next stage of development takes even takes takes a little bit longer up until like if we're talking about like the actual stages of human development depends but I'm just think I'm picturing like a toddler cool um up until they're like two or three and then they're like adults so a little bit longer of a time and then the rest of their adulthood even if their frontal cortex is still developing and they're not making the best decisions it still takes place from 18 to 70 years so their pro- that process of growth slows way down And that means two-thirds of our lives are spent as fully grown humans. And we don't experience the exponential growth in our bodies and minds as we did when we were fetuses or infants and then children. Our growth is a little difficult, more difficult to see, but eventually we end up at 70 or 80 years old, distinctly different from our 20-something selves, at least in appearance, hopefully in maturity, hopefully in wisdom. And we know we grew, but when and how did that happen? Any of you 70-year-olds there? You're like, how did that happen? I don't know if we have any 70-year-olds here today. 60? 50? Okay, nobody wants to be brave. Um, Our spiritual formation kind of mirrors this process of physical growth. The 10 months in the womb is like the time leading up to a decision to follow Jesus. There's like a spark of life. And we might not even recognize it as anything for a while. 
And the spark grows as we recognize our need for Jesus and God is growing life in us. And this is where the metaphor gets a little bit weird because we don't give birth to ourselves. So bear with me, perhaps at that spark of life, we're in the womb that is the Holy Spirit. Does that make more sense? Instead of being in our own womb, that's weird. Um, And the Holy Spirit fosters our questions and our trust in Jesus until finally we make a decision. We kind of draw a line in the sand and say that we want to be people who are committed to Jesus and follow him with our whole lives. And after we're birthed into the body of Christ, we become tiny humans. Christians who are committed to Jesus but still figuring out how to do this thing called life and maybe we kind of like bumble around and like fall Um, this morning as I was studying there was this little girl who just kept walking and then tripping and she would like wail and then her mom would just take a step toward her and she would stop crying it was kind of cute maybe you bumble around like that little Christian you need that like that little girl and you just need God to be like I'm here We fall a lot, and we're learning so quickly, and everything is new and exciting. We're not perfect, um, but in the blink of an eye, we're full-grown adults who still make decisions that are questionable. But actually doing this adulting thing, even if we're just taking it a day at a time. How many of you young adults are with me? Yep, taking it a day at a time. And eventually, at the end of our lives, we look back as people who have experienced so much life, And we see that in every stage, whether we were crying to be fed or falling or graduating high school or making good or bad decisions, in every step of this, Jesus was with us, teaching us and growing us and shaping us into people who look just like him. That's that's the Jesus I want to introduce you to this morning. The Jesus who meets us where we are, who changes our hearts and fills us with his love. And this process is called discipleship. It's kind of a churchy word. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, you're a disciple. If you didn't know that, congratulations, you're a disciple. It just means follower. Disciples are made to look like Jesus as we first commit our lives to him and then allow Jesus to change us. There's not one person who commits their life to Christ and suddenly is perfectly perfect, the exact model of Jesus. And if you are perfectly perfect, you may now stand up. Okay. There's not one disciple who doesn't need to be more formed by Jesus. There's no sinless follower of Jesus, just as there is no perfect human adult. We don't reach adulthood, graduate high school, and suddenly know how to do everything and make every decision wisely. No, we continue making and learning from our mistakes, and we see the heat gauge on our cars in the red, and we think, oh, it's okay if I just go down to the last two blocks to my house, only to have the engine overheat and stop right here. And it turns out you didn't just kind of damage your car, but you warped and you cracked the head, and your engine never runs the same again. And I definitely did not learn this through personal experience. (laughs) My dad was upset. (laughs) We aren't immediately perfect and knowledgeable when we turn 18 and we're not immediately sinless followers of Jesus when we become a disciple except that we have received his forgiveness and there is grace for us how many of you are thankful for the forgiveness of Jesus 
but we learn and we grow over a period of time and it's Jesus who does this work in us. It's not our own like muscle down and change. We're changed as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives by the grace of God. So that's what we're talking about for the next four weeks. We're people who are changed or people who God wants to change with his hope and life and joy. We're changed when we meet Jesus. And Jesus changes us as we allow him to shape our lives. And the whole world is changed as the church. Those who follow Jesus, that's you, church. Step into what we were made to be. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you got a paper copy or maybe it's on your phone, to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, either in hard copy or on your phone, feel free to just download one right now reference it. You can just search Bible in the app store. The book of Ephesians is about halfway through the New Testament. It's between Galatians and Philippians. It's a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus, which is where it gets its name, Ephesians, Ephesus. And Paul has just spent the past three and a half chapters telling this group of new Christians about how rich we are in Jesus and how through God's gracious and mysterious plan, We're made alive because of Jesus. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, people who aren't Jews. For they are hopelessly confused. If you're like, I'm not a Jew. Well, for our purposes, it's talking about Jews and Christians. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have learned about Jesus, have heard about Jesus, and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. In these verses, we hear that God wants to change us, not because he thinks who we are is horrible, although he does recognize that our sinful nature has corrupted us, but because God wants us to live in the life that he gives us. God doesn't want us to be confused. He doesn't want our minds to be full of darkness. He wants us to be soft to him so he can shape us and form us and fill us with his life. These are going to be our main verses that we come back to each week in this changed series. So maybe you want to stick a bookmark in there or click it so it like underlines in your app or mark it in your Bible, something like that. And wherever you are this morning, whatever your understanding of who Jesus is, Whatever level of commitment or curiosity you are at, I want to tell you and remind you of the living water Jesus offers us when we meet him for the, same, for the first time. It's the same living water he wants us to drink deeply of every day. This is the hope that is Jesus, that he truly satisfies when everything else in our world leaves us feeling confused and dark. You can flip with me again in your Bibles, this time to the book of John, chapter 4. There are some books in the back of the Bible with a 1 and a 2 and a 3 in front of John. 
They were written by the same person. Spoiler alert, it's John. But we're not reading those books in the back of the Bible. We're reading the Gospel of John. It's written by one of Jesus' disciples and tells about when Jesus was here on earth. So in the New Testament, if you're not there yet, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And I'm going to start reading in verse 3. It says this. Actually, I lost it. Okay. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar. If I'm pronouncing that wrong, you can correct me later. Near the field that G Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. Samaritan woman, why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, I don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here and get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? And Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, What do you want with her? Or, Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. And then skipping down, like, tenish verses in 39 it says many samaritans from the village believed in jesus 
because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. And they begged him to stay, and he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Let me give you a little bit of context for this situation. If I can put my notes back. There we go. Jews and Samaritans were not friends. They were enemies. They did not hang out on the weekends and invite each other over for barbecues or hang out after church on Sunday. They avoided each other at all costs, and they technically worshipped the same God-ish, but disagreed about how and where they should do that plus some other old family drama thrown in the mix, and the Jews were like, you're not really worshiping God, and the Samaritans were like, what do you know? Because of how much the Jews hated the Samaritans, most Jews took a longer, inconvenient route, like around Samaria, to avoid the whole people group. And men at this time, especially rabbi men, didn't speak to women in public. Jesus, as a rabbi, was taking a risk of being considered ritually unclean because he spoke to her, and another barrier was in place as well. The woman came to the well at noon. It's the hottest part of the day, which was very unusual as most women went to get the water for the day in the early morning. We can make the connection that she was socially ostracized and probably avoiding all of those other women because of what Jesus reveals later on. She was scandalously living with a man who wasn't her husband, and she'd already been married five times. All of these barriers that Jesus ignored point to the conclusion that Jesus really wanted to talk to this woman. When we meet Jesus for the first time, it rarely looks like we expect. She didn't expect to just find Jesus sitting at the well where she was going to avoid all the other people in town. Are there things in your life that you think are barriers, like your sin or like your gender or whatever? Jesus meets us exactly where we are, even and especially in the midst of whatever barriers we think are up, and even and especially in the midst of our sin. Don't believe the lie that anything could get between his love for you. Jesus offers us life. He tells the woman at the well that when she drinks the water he offers, living water, she won't ever want to drink anything else. It doesn't really make sense that you'll just drink one thing and like never be thirsty again. Just because I drink water as much as possible doesn't mean I don't want lemonade sometimes or coffee. Always coffee. But living water quenches our souls, our thirsty souls. It doesn't fit with the world's paradigm of what should happen or how it should happen. Jesus is just waiting for you to notice him sitting beside the well. He wants to reveal himself to us. He loves to surprise us with his presence because it's not the way we think it will be. And when he comes, it's not like the Jesus the world expects full of judgment, a false love that throws our mistakes in our face? Nope. The God of the universe comes to us as we are where we are. 
He offers us life before we know we need it. He offers us love that doesn't depend on us looking or acting or thinking a certain way. It's just love. When Jesus meets us, we're changed. Not an outward change, not a forced change, but a gentle and offering change. Not a change that looks like disdain on every action, but a change that pushes through to the heart of the issue. And that's what it is, a heart issue. Jesus is not obsessed with the outward action, but with the heart condition. He says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man looks on the outward appearance, what my body looks like, but the Lord looks at the heart. Have you ever pulled a dish out of a cabinet or the dishwasher or the sink and you're like, oh, this is gross. It's got food stuck to that one corner that's now so dry and crusty that it's going to stay on there until you move and you donate it to Goodwill. So someone else can scrub it off or throw it out. I'm looking at you, college students. (laughs) It's greasy. You can feel it on your hands when you pick up the plate and you're like, oh gosh, I don't want to eat off that. So you pick up a sponge and some soap and you clean it again. Jesus tells the religious leaders in Matthew that they've been too focused on the outside of their metaphorical dishes. You can think of your body like a cup. I guess you're a dish. And instead of... Wait. Oh, they've been too focused on the outside of their cup instead of on the part that actually holds the food or holds the drink. He says, first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside also will be clean. When you pick up a cup and wash it, that's what we do, right? We grab our soapy sponge and you like swish it around on the inside and like some of the soapy water squishes out and it gets on the outside of the cup and you're like, oh great, now all of it's clean and then you rinse it in the water. The outside of the cup gets clean too. Jesus is talking about our hearts here. He's talking about how we need him to meet us, need our hearts to be changed instead of just cleaning up our outside actions and thinking we've been changed. When I was in the eighth grade, my idea of changing my life was that I stopped cussing and stopped telling dirty jokes. I didn't feel very satisfied. The Bible tells us that our hearts, that out of our hearts flow either wickedness or living water. Living water that comes from Jesus. We need Jesus to change our hearts so his living water can flow out of us, bringing life and hope and peace to our hurting world. And we're changed when we meet Jesus, and the evidence of that changed life, the marks of a person who's met Jesus, are the things that I'm about to tell you. The first one is no shame. We're faced with our sin, but there's no shame. Our hearts are tired of shame. How many of you have a heart that's tired of shame? I do. The woman at the well was tired of shame too. She didn't want to hide who she was. She was so tired that she waited to get water until the hottest part of the day and walked who knows how far in the high sun just to not face the shame of other people who knew her sin and threw it in her face. And maybe she braced herself for similar words from Jesus, expecting him to call her a slut or a whore or whatever their favorite insult was. But instead, Jesus looked at her with 
compassion and he showed her that he knew her. He really knew her. And when he spoke the truth about her sin, it was to reveal himself to her as her saving and forgiving friend. When Jesus speaks truth to us, church, it's to reveal himself to us. Because when we see Jesus for who he really is, our hearts are changed. And that makes the outside of us change because we're living out of a heart that's been transformed by Jesus. And he refuses to shame us. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus proved the truth of that through this encounter with the Samaritan woman. The second thing that changes when we meet Jesus is our sense of satisfaction. Jesus offers living water, water that never runs out to the woman at the well. He knows she's been looking to fill the empty parts of herself with relationships and being needed and probably other things. We all have our coping mechanisms, things that we try to fill the holes in our hearts with or things that we try to numb the different pieces that we don't want to feel. And Jesus tells her that only his living water satisfies. This is true for us this morning, still. No matter what it is, whether it's partying or relationships or success or identity in something that we're really good at, or even the power of positive thinking, none of those things will satisfy us for a lifetime. They might for a season or a day, but nothing quenches our thirsty souls like a relationship with the living God. Come and drink of him today, church. He's here. And finally, when we meet Jesus, we're given a confident hope, a hope that is well-founded. It's not wishy-washy. It's not based on our temporary success. It's not based on who we think we are according to the world. It's based on our, based on our identity in Jesus. When the woman at the well met Jesus, he told her he was the Messiah. Based on our identity in Jesus. No, sorry based on Jesus' identity as our Savior. I said that wrong. He told her he was the Messiah, the one coming to rescue his people from bondage of sin and shame. And that was a pretty bold claim for a random man sitting beside a well. But the woman knew it was true in her heart, and she believed. And this woman, who had been avoiding people, actually ran to the village to tell every person about the man she'd met, the one who knew her sin but welcomed her and did not shame her. The one who came to rescue and set them free. And Jesus fills us with such confident hope that the things holding us back no longer need to. If that's fear or shame or doubt, bring those to Jesus because he's big enough to handle them. This hope that Jesus offers isn't a partial or a temporary hope. It's a hope that is in the everlasting, all-powerful, and never-changing God. A hope that's not in ourselves, but is in Jesus, a hope that declares itself to the people around us, just like her whole village learned of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We aren't changed just for ourselves, but for others. We're coming to the end of our service this morning, and I want to bring your mind back to the metaphor that we used earlier. Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you in the womb 
of the Holy Spirit with a spark of life that's just still growing? Are you meeting Jesus for the first time this morning? Is life sparking in you for the first time? Know that it's not shame or shade that Jesus is throwing at you this morning. He wants to change your life with his love. He wants to give you abundant life as you drink his living water. Are you an infant or a toddler today? Maybe you made the decision to follow Jesus, but you're kind of like stumbling and bumbling as you learn and grow. And you trip and you fall and you're just like, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. That's what God's saying. I'm still here. Are you an adult? Someone who teaches others to follow Jesus as you allow God to continue shaping your heart? Maybe you met Jesus a long time ago, but when you look at your heart, you don't see the evidence of that life change. You see shame and dissatisfaction and hopelessness instead of freedom and satisfaction and a confident hope. Turn to Jesus this morning. What does he want to do in your heart? We're going to pray together, and then we're just going to give you some space to talk with God about what's going on in your heart. Jesus, we see you meeting us this morning at the well that is our hearts. We've tried to fill our hearts with things that don't satisfy. We've allowed barriers in our hearts to keep us from your forgiveness. And we look to you, God, as the one who gives us living water the one who satisfies and gives us abundant life. We turn away from living life on our own, God. Even if we've been following you for a while, we may have set ourselves up before you and we turn away from that. We turn away from shame and dissatisfaction and hopelessness toward your freedom and your confident hope and your fulfilling living water. Change our hearts as we follow you today, God.